Take your Bibles with me, if you would, and open them to Luke chapter 7, Gospel of Luke chapter 7, as we finish up the Lord discussing with this crowd uh, surrounding the events of John the Baptist. Now the other day, I was in a place that I don't like to go, I'm not going to share its name it starts with a giant w and ends in mart and uh i was across the store it's kind of a new adventure for me uh having a a baby as many of you know changes everything and uh, that includes for the husband grocery shopping and uh, i came home with bologna and my wife was like what have you done i'm not good at it i just go when i'm hungry and start picking out things that sound good which is the most expensive way to to grocery shop, so don't do that. Um, but while I was there, and I don't go to this place very often anymore uh, because of those reasons, but while I was there, across the store, and, and you guys have probably experienced this, you know this, I heard this blood-curdling scream. And in that moment, I realized there's a child somewhere with its parents that didn't get what it wanted. And thought they needed something, whether it was probably their favorite cereal or candy bar or or fruit snacks or whatever. And for whatever reason, their parents said no, and now the the pipes are in full, full blast. I wasn't that kind of child. Uh, I just walked off from my parents when we went grocery shopping with them. I got lost in our grocery store more than once, uh, and we just had a United and Little Cordell America. But there are those instances where you see and hear those kids... um, for whatever reason, maybe they just had a bad day. They explode when they don't get what they want. Some of you may have those kids now or have had those kids or uh, maybe some of us, myself included, will have those kind of kids. But nonetheless, they're there. And their behavior reveals something about people in general, doesn't it? Because their behavior in that moment when they don't get what they want isn't a necessarily, necessarily learned a behavior. Now, they may have picked up some of those habits from an older sibling or, unfortunately, sometimes from their parents, but for the most part, you don't have to teach your child or your grandchildren or other children to throw a temper tantrum when they don't get their way. That's natural, isn't it? That's a natural behavior that's exhibited uh, out of their natural heart. And so that reveals something natural about humanity, and it reveals that we are, at our core, unsatisfied people and we struggle with satisfaction and we're prone to think that we have a sense of entitlement when we see something we want and when we don't get what we think we deserve we can react in such a way as a child the lord actually uses that same principle of a child's behavior to address the crowd listening to him in Luke chapter 7. We pick up in verse 31 this morning, and the Lord is talking to these people, and he calls them children who are unsatisfied. Now, as we've walked through this passage of Luke chapter 7, we've talked about some things that are actually pretty prevalent among God's people, prevalent in the church. We started off talking about doubt. Doubt plagues Christians, doesn't it? John the Baptist doubted. 
And doubt carries various forms. We talked about it. it's not just doubt in the existence of God. It may be doubt in the grace of God or in the love of God or in the promises of God. It takes various forms, but doubt is real in the life of a believer and in the life of the church. Last week we talked about this temptation for greatness or significance, which is ultimately a distraction. We are a distracted people and distraction is also prevalent in the church. Today we come to another issue that strikes too close to home. And it is this principle of unsatisfaction in the human heart. We are prone to be unsatisfied people. And what Jesus is going to teach today that is a timeless truth for us all is that the unsatisfied person is childish and behaves like a child and is concerned about trivial matters like a child. Now, satisfaction, just that principle there, we could, we could probably substitute that word a little bit in, in various forms with words like contentment or appeasement or fulfillment. But satisfaction in kind of its broadest terms, this sense of being satisfied and filled in the heart and the soul. It is, without doubt, one of the great desires of humanity, isn't it? We all want to be satisfied in life. In fact, we all pursue satisfaction. As we find or, or feel unsatisfied in one area of life, we're even willing to spend our resources and our times to fix that issue and, and become satisfied, to Pursue after that and seek after that. So it is one of the great desires of humanity. It is also one of the great struggles of humanity. In fact, I would be willing to say many of us sitting here today are unsatisfied in some area of our life. Or we're at least at the, at the very basic level tempted to be unsatisfied. In our lives, whether that be with a spouse, maybe you're unsatisfied in your marriage. Maybe you're unsatisfied with your job. Unsatisfied with how your children are behaving, unsatisfied with your income, unsatisfied with the, the status of your car, or the age of your car, or the size of your house, whatever we struggle with satisfaction. We struggle with fulfillment, contentment. And so not only is it a great desire, but it's also a great struggle. And I don't think I have to explain that any further. We get that. But satisfaction is also one of the great causes of sin in the human life. We pursue after sin when we're not satisfied in God. And we chase the things of the world when we're not satisfied in the things of God. And so when we struggle and when we are plagued with and when we act upon unsatisfaction in our hearts, we are prone to run to sinful things, worldly things. It's natural. So satisfaction... Church, it is important for us because it's a great desire, a great struggle, and a great cause of sin in human life. And nothing about it comes naturally to us. 
Nothing about contentment, appeasement, satisfaction is natural to your heart, is natural to your nature. Paul would even say in Philippians 4.11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content, to be satisfied. And he uses a very specific word there, I have learned. It wasn't easy. It wasn't natural. It, it didn't just come out and flow out for me. I had to learn contentment. I had to learn satisfaction. It, it implies work. It implies that it's a discipline. I had to put forth the effort to be satisfied in God and in the things that God gives me. And unfortunately, there are not too many people willing to work for satisfaction. And consequently, there's not very many people that can truly and honestly say, I'm completely satisfied in life. Paul was a rare example. And that's because in our hearts, we are a consumer-minded people, aren't we? We want things, we desire things, and we expect to get them and receive them. We want instant gratification, complete fulfillment, often in the wrong things. We want total appeasement of our desires and our needs. And when we don't get those things, we're just like that child in the grocery store, aren't we? We quickly run to anger. When we're unsatisfied in our hearts and trying to be satisfied in other things, we're quickly devastated. Life is crushed and ruined. Our life is over. We quickly become rebellious. That is how we know and that is why we can say that unsatisfaction in and of itself is one of the marks of sinful humanity. Of a sinful heart. Of a fallen world. Because it means we are unfulfilled. We are unsatisfied in the provisions of God. Church, we know this. If you would be willing to and allow God's Spirit to help you, even looking back on just this week in life, you will probably be able to identify moments of unsatisfaction. When your eyes have been taken off of the Lord, when your time has been taken away from the Lord, and you try to fill your heart with other things. And like I said before, when this lack of satisfaction in our life takes root in our hearts and when we act upon it, it is completely, totally devastating to the human life. You can sit back and you can watch in one extreme form a spouse leave their spouse for someone else. That is unsatisfaction. You can watch somebody start complaining about their income being too little, their car again being too old, their house too small. Even people in the church, our traditions are too old. That's unsatisfaction. And the effects of these things are more and more complex than just upgrading your life. They're impactful. They're lifelong effects. They're even emotional effects. And as I was studying this week, it just so happened to hear on the radio and other avenues this discussion of unsatisfaction, unsatisfied behavior in, in human beings. And they were trying to identify why are we so unsatisfied. And they labeled the cause and the reasoning of unsatisfaction to social media. That was their reasoning. We're, we're an unsatisfied people 
because we're consumed with the lives of others. And they were talking about how we are the first generation to really be able to have a real-time glimpse into someone's personal life because of social media. And people are always putting their best foot forward on social media, and so we look at their lives and we think, I, I want that, I'm jealous, I wish I had that, so on and so forth. And so they labeled, and, and a lot of psychologists and sociologists today are labeling social media as one of our great influences for an unsatisfied life and an unsatisfied heart. That may contribute to the problem, but the truth is that's not the problem. Unsatisfied people, the problem is a heart problem. Outside influences may contribute to that, but it's an internal issue. And so it's not just a, a problem of the materialistic world or the physical world and realm we live in. Unsatisfaction is a profoundly spiritual problem. It means your heart is empty. And your soul is longing for something. And let me just say something that may be hard for us to swallow sometimes in our life unsatisfaction should never be the mark of a Christian. The one who belongs to Christ should know nothing more of this unsatisfied heart or his unsatisfied soul. Now, how do we know it's a profoundly spiritual problem? Because of what the Bible says unsatisfied people and unsatisfied hearts and unsatisfied behavior ranges all the way back just like everything else in this passage we've looked at ranges all the way back to Adam and Eve. When they had the Garden of Eden and they had a, a real communion an easy walk with God and for whatever reason it wasn't good enough they wanted more, didn't they? So they saw the fruit they saw that it was pleasing to the eyes better make one wise to give knowledge, understanding Give them something they didn't have. So they wanted it. They were unsatisfied and they took of it. Just like doubt was present in their sin. Just like the temptation for greatness and distraction was present in their sin. So was this unsatisfied heart within them. And then it not only ranges back to Adam and Eve. It, it continues forward even to the time of Christ. And then even in today's time. And so the Lord addresses this unsatisfied problem in humanity. And we find that it's a timeless truth. It's a cross-cultural truth. Unless we're tempted before we jump into the passage to think that it's really not that big a deal to want more in life or to be unsatisfied in life, we need to realize an unsatisfied heart is an ungrateful heart in the provisions of God. That's what we're getting at here. That's why a heart in a believer that's unsatisfied with the things in their life is so significant because that means they're ungrateful for God's plan in their life. They're ungrateful for God's blessings in their life. They're ungrateful for God's provisions in their life. They forget the gospel. And we who know Christ and know forgiveness and know the salvation we've sang about should never be unsatisfied, but instead completely fulfilled in Jesus. 
Let's look at this passage that's really a passage of a warning here. In verse 31, as Jesus wraps up his conversation about John the Baptist, and, and in this text, he's not so much talking about John the Baptist as much as he's talking to the crowd and about the crowd. So verse 31, he looks at them and he says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Really, only two points we want to pull out of this passage this morning the analogy that Christ uses and the application that Christ uses. First, the analogy, verse 31 and 32. He's wanting to draw. And convey a truth and draw a comparison to these people with a visual aid. That's the whole point of verse 31. How can I compare you? What, do I, what should I compare you to? What are you going to be like? I want to convey something to you. I want you to have a, a visual truth. A visual reminder. And this analogy that he uses would not only have been quite completely clear to the listeners. It would have also been highly offensive. Because the Lord looks at these grown individuals. And in fact, verse 28, he's looking at these Pharisees and lawyers who are rejecting the purposes of God for themselves. He's looking at them and he says, you are like children. Children playing in the marketplace. That for them was a common scene. A totally understandable visual aid. They didn't have playgrounds like we have today in our world. They had an open area in the center of town, town square. And when the marketplace wasn't set up there, the kids would often occupy that place plain. And so these people listening to Jesus would have totally understood the picture that he's painting. You're like children playing in the marketplace. Now, typically, the New Testament uses that term children in a positive sense. Specifically in our relationship to God. We are children of God. In fact in verse 35. You'll see it used in a positive sense. But Christ in verse 32. Uses this word in a very negative sense. In fact one commentator said. It's the equivalent of our word for brat. Unruly kids. Spoiled. Uncontrollable. Filled with anger and entitlement. And pride and, and temper tantrums. They're unappeasable children. That, that's what you're like. You're not like the children of wisdom. You're not like the children of God. You're like the brats. And as we look at the Lord's analogy, we see that even when these kids play something as trivial as a game, their unsatisfied, spoiled nature shines through. So how shall I compare you? You're like bratty children playing in the marketplace. And this is how you play. First, he says, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. Now often kids, and they still do today, play games where they can pretend where they're doing something. And kids in this time would pretend what they saw 
uh, most in the community, which were often weddings and funerals. Those were some of the most public events that kids would have seen and been a part of. And so here we find them playing, pretending a game of, of, uh, of being a part of a wedding. A, a joyous occasion. We're playing the flute. We're playing an instrument. And you're supposed to dance. And yet the other children, in Jesus' analogy, aren't complying with their demands. They're not complying with their expectations. And so they're complaining. Hey, we're, we're playing this game and we're playing the flute and you're not doing what we want you to do. We're, you're not doing what we expect. That is an unsatisfied heart, isn't it? Which, by the way, unsatisfied people tend to place expectations on others and then react in anger when those expectations aren't met. In fact, I would say a quick diagnosis of an unsatisfied heart is unwarranted anger. You want to know if you are an unsatisfied person? If you think you have to have it your way all the time, do you exhibit unwarranted anger when things don't go your way? That's what these children are doing. And it's not just that. They're not just playing the, the wedding game. They sing a dirge, which is a song sung at a funeral. And they expect the other kids to weep and to mourn and to play along. And they complain yet again when the kids don't weep and the kids don't mourn and the kids don't play along. It's the polar opposite of a wedding. If you're not going to play wedding with us, maybe you'll play funeral with us and you're not going to do either and so they're upset. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And he's purposely drawing the contrast. Two polar opposite games and two groups of kids that can't be satisfied. The first group is not satisfied because the others won't play as they expect. The second group is unsatisfied because the first group's not playing the games they want to play. And as you and I sit back and look at that, we say, one... That's true of children. And two, that is an entirely trivial matter, isn't it? So what? Children are being children. And they're going to be that way. And it's really not a big deal. So what if the games don't go like they want? They're just that, in fact, games. This is trivial. And yet, Jesus says, you people are like these trivial children. When your heart is unsatisfied, you argue about trivial matters. You can begin to see here how offensive this might be to the crowd listening. When the Lord says, this is what you're like, we can simply say the unsatisfied person is like a child who doesn't get their way person who doesn't know fulfillment in Christ behaves like the brat, like the child. And what is convicting is how often could we say that's true about our unruly hearts? When we act in our flesh, take our eyes off of Christ, 
don't walk with him. Complain about how things are in life. When we are unappeasable, this truth applies to us. We are the trivial children. And how often in my week has that shown forth? How often in my week do my actions say that I'm being the trivial child? My interactions with my wife and interactions with co-workers and other people, how often am I coming across unsatisfied? How convicting can this be? The worst part of the passage is not the highly offensive analogy that the Lord uses. The worst part is the application that the Lord uses in verses 33, 34, and 35. Jesus references both John's ministry and his own ministry. And much like the children's games, who are, which are polar opposites, so too are John's ministry and Jesus' ministry. First, John the Baptist. We've talked a lot about John. We've discussed before that his ministry is one of judgment. His ministry is one of uh, repentance and even condemnation. He is forceful in his message and strict in his ministry. And one commentator even said we could liken John's ministry and John's message to the dirge or the funeral game that the kids played in the analogy. His message was meant to entice weeping and mourning for God's impending wrath and judgment upon the wicked. But the Lord really only references John's ministry and message by implication. He refers specifically to his lifestyle. He says, verse 33, John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. John's living a self-imposed, exiled life. He's living out in the wilderness. And so it's not so much John's message that you're rejecting. It's John himself. He came eating no bread. Basically living a life of fasting, right? We know John ate honey and locusts. He came drinking no wine. Denied himself luxuries and joys and what was common among people commonly consumed. And in fact... Probably, if a Pharisee had lived like John, he would have been hailed as a, a man of piety, right? Or holiness. He probably would have been hailed as a man of godliness. In fact, the Pharisees themselves had tried to fast more than others. Had to, had to have extra fasts in their life so they could be seen as more godly. And here comes John, who's basically living a lifestyle of fasting and they say he's not holy he's not godly instead he's got a demon he's the opposite of godliness the people would actually even the same people who flock to hear john and be baptized by him would be influenced by these religious leaders and even grow cold and hostile against john and leave him in prison for dead the truth is, and what Christ is saying is, you are like children in the marketplace who are unsatisfied playing their games. And here's the application. God sent you John the Baptist and he wasn't good enough for you. God has sent a message through the last and final Old Covenant prophet. And 
That didn't satisfy your hearts. He wasn't good enough, was he? So John came. And you didn't like him. Verse 34. The Son of Man has come. Reference to himself. And if John's message was like the dirge, the funeral game, then Jesus' message in ministry was most certainly like the flute and the dancing and the wedding, right? Because Jesus came claiming grace and forgiveness and compassion and performing miracles, didn't He? He wasn't like John. He didn't exile Himself. He wasn't living out in the wilderness away from people, the Lord interjected Himself in the social scene. He was involved with the culture, involved with the people. He was walking and eating with them and living among them. And not only was He preaching with His words, grace, He was ministering to the broken and the sick. Those whom... The Pharisees would call the worthless people of society. And so in many ways, he was opposite of John. And, and yet, verse 34, the Son of Man has come. And you weren't satisfied with Him either. He's come being a part of your world. He's come being around you. And He's proclaimed the, the gospel of grace. And yet, you say, look at Him. He's a glutton and a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors, a, a friend of sinners, a, a friend of the worthless. Jesus is looking at these people and saying, you're like the unsatisfiable children. You reject John and you reject me. You can't be pleased. And we know the story. They would ultimately reject Christ all the way to the cross. To the point of crucifixion. So in case you, you think people just happen to be tired of John's ministry. And that maybe they would respond differently to another one. Christ is exposing here the one single truth. You're not going to listen to anything that comes from God. And so there's the worst part of an unsatisfied heart. There's the worst part of this passage. It's not just that you're like children unsatisfied even over trivial matters. You're like children unsatisfied with the message of God. Because it's not just that you're rejecting messengers of God. You're rejecting the very message of God. You're rejecting the Gospel. I mean, at a very, very basic level, when they reject John and Jesus, they reject prophets and messengers. And yet at the most important level, they're rejecting even God in the flesh. So the tragedy of this passage is not just that the analogy and the application of the Lord is saying that these people are unsatisfied with the current religious styles and methods of the day. It's that they're unsatisfied with the gospel itself. And, and let's just be honest and true about that ourselves. Because it's not just that we get 
unsatisfied with this church or that church. It's really that you're unsatisfied with God. People who flee from one church to the next are unsatisfied with God. People who claim Christianity and live a life so opposite of Christ are unsatisfied with God. I want you to notice what, what an act of grace here on behalf of the Lord. He so wants people to believe and He so wants people to confess that he, He'll send people. How, how many messengers does God have to employ so people will hear? Two polar opposites in John and Jesus, and yet, still, neither one are good enough. What a stubborn and unbelieving heart. And yet again, the sobering truth is we can be this childish generation. We can be this unsatisfied We can be the child in the grocery store that throws a fit at God when things don't go our way or when the Bible doesn't say what we want it to say. We can easily get caught up in this ourselves. And how, how many people do we know, unfortunately, that have heard the gospel and been exposed to the things of Christ and it's still not good enough for them. Humanity struggles with unsatisfaction. And the enemy that is so active, roaring around like a lion, seeking whom he may devour, is working and working and working on God's children to make them unsatisfied in God so that they too will turn to the things of the world. Don't buy the lie of the enemy and don't buy the lie of the world. Because unsatisfaction in God, rejecting the words and message of God is childish and trivial foolishness. And there is good news in this passage. It's found in verse 35. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. The Lord is saying, yes, some will accept and believe the gospel. Because true and genuine wisdom is not to be unsatisfied in God. It is to be satisfied in God. True wisdom, real wisdom, is salvation. It's to believe. It's to repent. It's to have faith in Christ. And those who genuinely know the salvation of Jesus justify that that is wisdom and that is satisfaction. The wisdom of believing in Jesus is justified by all her children, all those who do believe. That means, church, we are to live lives as Christians fully satisfied with Jesus. We're not to be like the children playing the game. We're not to be like the people of this generation who reject John and reject Jesus. We are to be people who know and have tasted the love and grace of God. We are to live our lives not pursuing worldly things, but living our lives lives as if God is enough for us. As if Jesus is enough for us. Because He is. 
that salvation, the gospel that's proclaimed by both John and Jesus, it will be justified by those who understand it and believe it and, and trust in Jesus because we are satisfied. Things don't go our way. We trust in God. If the church is going through a downturn, we trust in God. If our finances falter, trust in God. If we're working in a place that we're really not wanting to be at, we trust in God and His plan for us. We are satisfied in whatever God would have or say. This passage is a passage of warning, and the warning is don't be like the children in the marketplace. And yet we struggle with that. And the call is to don't pursue everything under the, under the sun, but yet be satisfied in Jesus. Live differently and know how fulfilling Christ is. But I fear that the reason that the global American church is struggling today is because people aren't satisfied with Jesus. They can claim Him and profess Him and pray a prayer. But their life shows they're not satisfied with the Lord. They're not satisfied enough to spend time with Him. They're not satisfied enough to serve Him through the church. Because a satisfied heart that's satisfied in Jesus builds its life around Jesus. The heart that is fulfilled in Christ devotes itself to Christ. Lives its life based off of Christ. The heart that is not living in such a fashion is a heart that doesn't know satisfaction in Jesus. So let us be a people who hear the warning and one, repent. Ask the Lord for forgiveness for every time we live a life that's unsatisfied in Him. Every time we act like the child. And two, let us have truth exposed to us. The world is lying to you and you will not be satisfied in the things of the world. You will never fill the void in your heart. Only Christ will. And it's foolishness to try to fill your life up with anything else for satisfaction other than God. So if you struggle as a believer with satisfaction, finding fulfillment, completeness in life, let the truth of this passage expose you. It's childness and foolishness to run to anything else and it's wisdom to run to Christ. And unbelievers, let that truth sink into your heart as well. There are many people here who can testify that the things of this world do not satisfy. They may for a moment and they may for a time, but they will not for eternity. Only Jesus will. We implore you as the Lord does, don't be like this generation. Be fulfilled in Jesus. I think if we were fulfilled in the Lord, if, if we were satisfied in Him, if our hearts were full with love for Jesus and devotion for Jesus, if our lives were truly transformed by Him, I think the life of the church would look drastically different. 
I think we'd be an evangelistic people. Servant-hearted people. Compassionate people. Grace-filled people. I think we would more often reflect our Lord and battle against sin and confess to the Lord and repent quicker. The truth is, every one of us, myself included, need this warning from Christ. To stop seeking satisfaction in other things. And to be so consumed with Jesus. I pray that would be the mark of us. That would be our banner. That Jesus is enough. And that I work. I live. And I marry. And I parent. And I serve all to His glory. His pleasure. His honor. With joy. That's where satisfaction's at. And I pray we would be that kind of a people. Oh Lord, we do pray this morning that we would be satisfied in nothing and no one else but You. And that You would free us from those chains that we sang about this morning. That You would free us from the pursuit of other things to fulfill us. And that we would be exposed to the truth right here this morning. That we can be fulfilled in you. Wisdom is justified by all her children. Lord, too many times I've been the child in the marketplace complaining that I don't get my way. That's unsatisfaction in my heart. I'm satisfied with what you've given me, with what you've blessed me with, with what you have me doing. That's a rejection of you, a rejection of John, a rejection of your plan, even at times a rejection of the gospel. Forgive us, Lord, when we take our eyes off of you. When we forget that you are in control and you have a plan and you provide. Let us pause and think on the gospel. Think upon your blessings when we are tempted to complain about life. Oh Lord, fill our souls with Your Spirit. And let us have such a taste of You that we could never be satisfied in anything else again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.